The union gets the notebook. You get promoted to a soft job. Okay. You get the chance to change things. But what do I get? What about my family, Zeke? Why is your family more important than my family? Jerry, there ain't nothing in the world I wouldn't do to protect my babies and my wife. Now you gotta take care of your own family. You're a worker, man. I'm a worker. Let's work together. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. We are at episode 19 and this is Cole's choice. What have you chosen, Cole? This time around, I have chosen for us Blue Collar from 1978, directed and written by Paul Schrader, starring Richard Pryor, Yafit Koto, and Harvey Keitel, also with a co-write from Schrader's brother Leonard. It is the story of three Detroit auto workers who are getting by their hard scrabble existence, meager pay, no benefits, family pressures that strike upon this scheme to rob the union offices and then we see things unravel from there. Now do you want to talk about the uh, hard scrabble quality of your voice mm. in this episode? I probably should. I'm suffering from the last vestiges of pneumonia and so I'm not going to be nearly as energetic or enthusiastic as I might normally be. <laughs> But we will try to get through it, and I will just quit when I can't do anymore. Did you get it from uh, working in the coal mines, as the quality of the voice would indicate? Did you throw yourself into research for this one? In fact, almost exactly the opposite. I think I got it on the plane back from our trip to Paris. Where we were living it up. And apparently, unbeknownst to us, the leg from Paris to Atlanta was full of patient zeros. I think so. And since then, it's been kind of tough. And I, I have just a minor cold, so I sound like I need to have my adenoids taken out from 1955. But that's the worst of it. You truly have pneumonia. I had that. Did, did you know that? No. Adenoids, tonsils, that whole thing done when I was about eight, nine really? years old. Uh -huh. No, I didn't know that. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, where do we start? Uh, we start on the factory floor. Credits roll and... We are treated to probably the most raw, R-rated intro music to any working man drama that I've ever seen. You usually see the blues overlaid with this sort of thing. Or you've got your take this job and shove it, that kind of thing. This is not cute. This is This lets us know right away when Captain Beefheart starts singing these lyrics. What we're talking about here is real. And if you're not a grown-up, get out. And it doesn't look like actors portraying auto workers. It looks like real auto workers. It looks like you're really on the line. Some of that's true. They did get out-of-work auto workers to work as extras, and some of it is also just because the extras they cast were neither from Los Angeles or New York, but were from Michigan. So we start on the factory floor, and we meet our three principals as the camera moves smoothly around, and you see this sort of hellish work landscape 
that they dwell in day after day after day with the heat and the sparks and the pounding and the incessant riding from their superiors and from the jump we are very clearly given the opportunity to see how this fosters so much anger and constant frustration there is nothing pleasant about this work there is nothing enriching or rewarding about this job they are doing it is soul-sucking difficult labor that is constantly under the scrutiny of guys who were doing their job but have now since moved up the ranks to management and have completely forgotten what it was like to be one of those cogs i don't know these days i have a little bit more sympathy for those kind of shift bosses i'm in a little bit of a different position now and now i feel what they are then feeling from even above them and how every person in every job is getting squeezed by somebody. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty lousy system from top to bottom. It is. It's, it is if you agree, I guess, <laughs> at least with the strenuously Marxist reading of this film, which is basically that, well, Yafet Koto says basically what is the thesis statement of the film in that they are pitting young against old, new guy against veteran, black guy against white guy, and it's all to keep the workers from organizing and understanding that their problems with each other are not the real problems. It's this they. Right. It's always going to be the they. Versus us. And I would definitely love to get into this incredibly lighthearted subject of trade unionism later. This has been really <laughs> bothering me since we saw it. So we'll jump into that at some point. But let's get back to the floor. We're on the floor. So we get brief but insightful glimpses of the guys and their character. And right away, it's established that Zeke, Richard Pryor's character is kind of the firebrand. He's the one that, if any of them, are going to be the agitator, the one who speaks up, the one who is the voice of the worker. Whereas Yafit Kodo, his character seems a little more sophisticated than the other two. He's seen more things, been in more trouble, for one thing. I was going to say, I think we get, a, we get a sense later that he's got a little bit more to lose in a different way mm -hmm. than the other folks. So it's not as easy, in a sense, for him to speak up. Right. Because he, does, he has fewer places to go. He has fewer places to go, fewer alternatives. But he also, maybe it's implied that his stakes aren't as high because he's the one member of our main trio that does not have a family. Yes. And then you see Kaitel, who is probably feeling these family pressures more than either of the two of them. And we learn that he has another job as well, so he's working even more hours. Right. So we're introduced to these characters. And it is a cycle, at least in the beginning of the film, of workplace, bar, workplace, bar. It's a little bit of time that passes before we see anybody's home life. And in the middle of that, the first thing we see outside of either work or bar is a union meeting in which Richard Pryor cites his broken locker as the example of the fact that the union does not care about the employees, that the union is not taking care of the employees who are putting in their dues faithfully, that even more specifically, the black employees 
get short shrift from the union, whereas if this was a white employee's problem, it would have been tended to by now. And you get the sense that something as outwardly simple as a broken locker, day after day after day, becomes this enormous thing on par with a wage. Massive frustration. It is a quality of life issue. It's the fact that he has to pay money out of his own pocket to tend to the issue. That he buys ballpoint pen after ballpoint pen to try to just jimmy a locker. like Almost like he's a kid, a student, a high school kid. I was just about to say, he makes that comment and then you get again that sense of not necessarily emasculation, but that paternalism that keeps you down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as, he, as if you're a kid, as if you're not relevant enough to be treated as a grown-up. Yeah, your considerations, even though you're doing this job that is incredibly dangerous and difficult and physically taxing and emotionally wearing, your considerations are not even those of a grown man. And in that meeting, it was a really welcome sight to see Harry Belliver, who plays the union boss, mm-hmm. Eddie Johnson. And if you've been watching these movies for as long as we have, you recognize all of those guys that have been around forever and ever and ever. And it lends that extra sense of, I've seen this guy play the enforcer and the tough guy and the heavy a million times. And he imbues that character with that sense of all of these years of corruption and working from one nasty guy after another. And now he's the guy that's moved up. Yeah, it suits the character. You can really get that feeling, like you say, that since the 30s, he's been doing this. And in fact, he was where Pryor is now at one point. He talks about how, because of him, Pryor has the opportunity to be in this job. He's the one, as the union as the union organizer, who fought to get black people in, who fought to get fair wage for everybody. It's interesting that you mentioned that particular thing, because if you go back, say, a decade or so before this film was shot, mid-60s, height of the civil rights movement, the plant as plantation, like it's mentioned, it was a time very much so when all the black employees that this character you mentioned he implies that they should be thankful that they are even able to do this job. The black employees were routinely given the dirtiest, most unsafe, most physically taxing jobs on the floor. And there was a real segregation, obviously, still so much so that in keeping with this theme of keeping everybody separated rather than organized together, that would play itself out in something as basic as whenever the workers went to the union meetings, they were clearly each pushing a different agenda. Their circumstances on the factory floor were so separate and so different that it's not the somewhat integrated scenes we see in blue collar where it's more of a class issue. It was very definitely much more divided by race even just a few years before. And let's not even talk about women. Right. And Asians. And again, reading through this very lighthearted subject of trade unionism, Asians had no place. I mean, that would not even considered. Mm-hmm. Not even a black-white gender issue. One thing that I thought was telling that it wasn't in Blue Collar from the time period, at least, was a lot more commentary on Middle Eastern employees, if there were any at the time, because of the ongoing oil crisis in the late 70s and OPEC and all of these things. I expected to see a little bit more anti-Arab sentiment, for instance, which 
was nowhere in the film. It was strictly about much more American-centric race issues, I guess. Strictly black-white in this case. It could be that those things aren't included because this is already complicated enough. And to add two or three more disparate threads to this conversation might have only diluted the conversation. It's hard to say. It is. And it's obviously something that I've been thinking about. So I've been reading more about it, and but not an answer to be had here today. So we've had the union meeting, and we've seen this cycle of work, bar, work, bar. And again, before we even get to the home front for anyone, the last thing that happens in the bar before we see any establishment of home life is that a guy comes in purporting to be a university educator, a teacher who's trying to do a survey about trade unions. And he gets into this weirdly confrontational exchange with Kaitel, Pryor, and Kodo under the guise of asking somewhat innocent questions, but you can tell he's pushing an agenda. And Kodo, being the more streetwise of the trio, immediately calls him out as FBI. Now, this guy is played by Cliff DeYoung. Have you ever seen Cliff DeYoung play an ethical character in your memory? Not that I can recall. Every look on his face strikes me that he's looking for his justification. Mm, I can see that. It's that little mouse face. It is. And his eyes, he's got shifty eyes sometimes. And he, yeah, he always looks like he's a little bit startled that people have picked up on whatever he's oozing out. He thinks he's so clever that he'll never be caught and yet he's constantly betrayed by that very expression, that look of overconfidence and too clever for his own goodness on his own face. They won't talk to him. The three characters will not engage with him once it's pretty clear, oh yeah, he's got this other very clear agenda to find whatever corruption is going on at the union level. So we're 15, 20 minutes in maybe, and we've already got this triumvirate established which is the probably the most interesting question of this whole thing to me, that it is employers, union, and government. You've got these three forces that are all, in this film at least, seemingly positioned against the worker. Obviously, government is always going to be big bad guy. But changing during this period... We've got big inflation problems under Jimmy Carter, and then in just a very short amount of time, it's going to be Reagan deregulating everything, mm. breaking a strike later on. And then you've got the employer, obviously, that's another evil. You've, and you, So the one thing on that triangle that's left that is supposed to be in favor of the employee, the union, there's this love-hate relationship with the union that almost makes it equal to the other two. Because what are they supposed to do? They talk about, Harvey Keitel in particular, talks about being on the picket line. They were out of work for two months, and that's no money. They don't have any backup on that. And so they fought for a reasonable wage, and they saw that work, and they saw themselves get somewhat of a place at the table just to turn around and, and wonder where has their money and their effort gone. So what is it all for, or who is it all for, if they see no benefit from it? Or if they did at one point, and then was that just a scam to keep them loyal forever? You pay dues to somebody month after month after month? For what? 
this is going to be a really depressing episode mm. probably because I think that what we are eventually going to arrive at is that the truth of the matter is that all of us are working for this small handful of people who can really make any difference when it comes to these things. <sighs> and that government, union, and workplace are all essentially synonymous. Wow, yeah, I've got I've I've got nowhere to go right now after that statement. Well, Ugh. let's go home in this case. Okay. This is where we get to see home life. We first see Richard Pryor and his family at home enjoying the Jeffersons on television. Semi-enjoying. The wife is enjoying. He's, he's just mad. And I think it's really interesting to see a contemporary watching contemporary television of the time. There are two reasons that I think... Well, there's one major reason. Norman Lear's production company financed some of this film. Oh, gosh. And so, therefore, that's what got used. You wow, see okay. the Jeffersons and you see Good Times a couple of times but the other interesting thing I think about this again it's this muddled weird confusing race thing in which yes it seems like it's a progressive step you are seeing black people on television primetime television for the first time shows of their own all black casts all black characters but the clips that we see in the film are the ones that are the most caricaturish mm -hmm. The ones that are the most exaggerated, and you're not actually seeing working class black people like we're seeing in Blue Collar. The characters in Blue Collar, what they're seeing, the representatives of themselves that they're seeing on television, are slightly cartoonish. And I'm thinking about Zeke's wife watching the Jeffersons and laughing along with it while the kids are playing on the side where there's almost no light, which I'm assuming is because electricity costs money. Mm -hmm. Keep everything down. And she's sitting on the sofa with the plastic cover, you know? Mm -hmm. It's this it's this low middle class, barely low middle class and everything that you have to fight for and retain and that sense of don't don't get this thing dirty because mm -hmm. it's we maybe we're still paying it off. Oh I guarantee you still paying it and, off. It feels very real. Yeah, it's that life on the installment plan, life on layaway thing that regardless of race, if you are of a certain working class existence, we went through it when I was a kid. So I can tell we. you that. Definitely. I, there were more weekends than I can count that we were paying a little bit at the Kmart layaway window. And I so remember those days and still have them sometimes where Whatever the amount of money is that you're talking about, whatever it is, is all that you have. Mm -hmm. Maybe even more. Maybe than even have. more than you have, and you're thinking, how many paychecks ahead to get to this? Yeah, it's withering. Thankfully, not a situation we find ourselves in anymore. But I certainly am not that far removed from it that I don't remember what it was like as a kid. Or there having. Were, or being one step removed from something like that happening happening with something even not even catastrophic. Say somebody gets sick. Yeah. Somebody gets hurt. No, we had a lot of beans and cornbread nights in the early 70s up until the mid-80s even maybe. 
And that's still not to say that I can completely relate to their situation because I can't because we did not have to struggle in the same way Mm -hmm. that they are clearly struggling. Right. We never had the IRS man come to the door, for instance, which is what happens in this case to reveal that Zeke has falsified claims on the tax return claiming they have six kids when they only have three. Now, I do know people who did that. Really? In my neighborhood. Yes. Interesting. (laughs) Yes. How did that turn out for them? Not good. Well, in Zeke's case, it means he owes $2,600, which is maybe, what would you guess, a third of his salary for the year at this point? Probably, because when he talks much later on about this pay increase that he's looking at, it's 17000 So I would say he's probably making half of that, maybe now. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's at least a huge chunk of money. A huge chunk An of money. An insurmountable chunk of money, as far as they're concerned at this point, because he says to the guy finally when he breaks down he says look around you you know do you see anything that indicates to you that i can afford this this is more than my family can bear now i know that that scene in particular is one that you have a problem with i don't like it for a couple of reasons it seems lazy next to how well written some of the other things are for instance when you look at harvey Keitel's home life there's that scene that really where he breaks because his daughter has tried to fashion braces for herself. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And she's injured her mouth. Yes. Because she needs dental work. And finally, that's the last straw for him. But this thing with Pryor and his family and the faking the tax return and the IRS man coming to the door, it's a little broad. It's a little silly. I think it was them trying to capitalize on Pryor's comic talent but it seems so out the tone of it seems so out of place compared to everything else it just doesn't work for me and i think in in one respect it feels like the negative side of that norman lear comedy because it's this older white guy jewish older older jewish white guy with the hat Mm -hmm. same old norman lear hat kind of playing it the way that he decides to play it Though it does make me laugh at the same time, the names of the kids that he has made up. <laughs> My favorite is Gail Sayers Brown. That's a good one. That, that, that was good. But I do have a little problem with, uh, let's say, our first big chunk of the movie, and this is part of it. There are music cues that happen that are sort of that kind of wah-wah funkiness that feel really out of sync with the rest of the movie. Mm. And that, that goes away, but... I think that that's what I reacted to a little bit, too. It's sort of, why is this happening in this way? Because everything else is, feels very real. Mm-hmm. He is mad because he's mad. Yeah. You know, not because of one specific thing or one kid's acting up. He's mad. He's mad at the TV that it exists. He's mad at the show that it exists. It's just this thing mm-hmm. that he's living with. I know what you mean about the music cues. There are one or two, again, it seems to me lazy TV-ish implementation of it there's that thing that you mentioned right here and the other one that sticks out in my mind is when the vending machine steals the guy's money for the 16th time and he drives the forklift into it there's a little bit of that tj hooker dukes of hazardy music sting Mm -hmm. in there Mm -hmm. that it just seems lazy in that point too especially when the use of music has been so great up until that point. yes hard driving blues versus that kind of thing so it's set up really clearly at this point zeke has a very specific money woe Mm -hmm. there's a dollar amount attached to this and he's got no way to get it really 
And soon after that, the FBI guy comes to Keitel's second job. At the gas station. At the gas station where he's pumping gas. Mentions in passing that this is the most corrupt local in the state. So we have kind of an idea of just how little the union is doing for its members. And how much pressure is on Keitel. Because we've seen now he's doing an even more demeaning job that he has to do overnight to provide for his family. So the stakes are very clearly established at this point. And Keitel has a wife and two kids. And Richard Pryor, Zeke, he has the wife and three actual children. Smokey, who is Yafat Koto, has no kids, no wife. He's got a sea of gambling debts, which is where the pressure for him comes in. But he does not have the same family responsibilities that you mentioned that the other two guys have. But we learn clearly that he is an ex-con. Mm-hmm. Serious. Yes. So what are his vast career options? Yeah, the way Not many. his history is lined out, you get the very distinct impression that third strike is going to be it for him. Because he tells a pretty funny story about why he ended up in jail the second time, what happened, and it involved a cop. And he basically, a black man and a cop, it's only going to go one way yeah, in that a, world. A really telling conversation that he's having with prior Keitel and Ed Begley Jr., in this case, who was another one of their co-workers, where he tells the story, uh, basically a story of mistaken identity, where he beats down a cop thinking it is a husband coming home, and the cop, coincidentally, was just knocking on the wrong door, looking for someone that was next door, and Begley asks him, well, why didn't you just explain the situation to him? Like a white guy would. Yeah. And in 1978... It's hard, to, it's hard to understand now after having seen all of the things we've seen and the disparate way that people are treated by police officers when pulled over or stopped for any reason that in 1978 this might have been a more legitimate and innocent question to ask. We couldn't ask that question anymore, obviously, after, after all the things we've seen. But even in 1978, their reaction to it, Kodo and Pryor, after having lived their whole lives since they were kids, probably, dealing with this sort of prejudicial treatment, knowing that there is no discussing this situation. There is no talking to anybody about this. No one is going to help me deal with this. And telling as well that when Bagley delivers the line, he it's genuine. Mm-hmm. He's He's got naivete written all over him. And I could imagine some people... Oh, yeah, nodding along with that. and then My parents, and, maybe, even. Growing up in Oklahoma... My dad, maybe not so much, since my dad's Comanche and Mexican, are part of our descent is Comanche and Mexican. I'm sure that he dealt with some of those issues. But my mom, maybe, you know, not having seen very much of the world besides a small corner of Oklahoma in 1978, had she seen that, that might have been her reaction as well. Could be, and Detroit is a different world, too. Oh, considerably. Anyway, there's, there's bad stuff all over, that's for sure. And definitely in this movie. So to deal with those pressures, one thing we see them do at this point is Keitel and Pryor sneak out of their respective houses to go to a party at Kodo's house. And when I asked the question earlier, you know, what are they doing it for? <laughs> what I didn't want to ruin was this moment right now of a uh, Coke party sex orgy. In which 
something I never necessarily thought I would see. Kaitel and Richard Pryor having a, a dildo duel. That was pretty great. Pretty great. This is one of those things that I think was a contributing factor to the failure of the movie is sort of underlined right here. The commercial failure of the movie? Exactly. Right, not that we think it's a failure. No, not an artistic failure. Thank you, commercial failure. And one of the main reasons that I chose this as an example of something I love is that I cannot stand. I have such a deep hatred for this mindset of this movie's no good because there are no likable characters in it. That drives me insane to hear people level that as if that's some sort of legitimate criticism of storytelling ability, the fact that there's no one in it that they like. That you see you see two family men, ostensibly, you know, make up the lamest excuses in the world to go, you know, go down on these women who are not their wives and just get really, really high. But it never occurred to me to think whether or not there were likable characters in it or not. It never came across my radar mm. at all. I can see a conventional moviegoer, though, in 1978 being somewhat taken aback and not having anyone that they feel they could root for when Harvey Keitel is joking the next day about potentially bringing crabs home. Yes, and I love the the dildo sword fighting scene because no one is engaging in this kind of hyper-masculinity mm-hmm. that... Harvey Keitel will play characters later on who are hyper-masculine, yeah. that's for sure. And no one seems to come across with that as an excuse at any point as to justify why they're doing anything. Yeah, It's never, you've done this, uh, I mentioned emasculation earlier, and that doesn't, it doesn't necessarily happen in that way. Nobody says, I'm the man, I'm supposed to do all of this, thank God. It's more of that basic human level. But it's pretty vivid, and they don't shy away from showing anything or trying to portray that there's some sort of higher motivation in this Coke sex party. None whatsoever. And in the come down of this party, in the aftermath of this party, is where the crucial plot is hatched to break into the Union safe. They are sitting on the couch together. After all, this is over. Really in the very much one of those cold light of day moments weighing their options looking very closely at where they are in their lives and what is happening to them and this is where the germ of that idea starts Richard Pryor has been talking 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 about this safe and Kodo finally calls his bluff and says well are we going to do this thing or not and that's where the conversation starts is in the aftermath of this party And I think this is the point at which that first chunk of these sort of misplaced music cues and sound cues stops. Mm -hmm. And it gets more serious serious. at that point. Although there are weird little touches of humor still throughout. During the heist, for instance. There are, but they're not not Mm sitcom-y, I think. It feels more grounded in the characters as an actual thing that they would do. And they're not, I mean, they're not hardened criminals. They're, they're not, even Smokey, he's not a career criminal. Mm-hmm. Nor are they the most brilliant folks in the world, because what would their opportunities have been to become the most brilliant folks in the world? No, and that increasingly comes into play once the heist happens, and they find what they find, and they go about deciding how to deal with this. And the whole thing from the start is pretty 
ill-conceived mm. or at least sloppily conceived but again these aren't the smartest guys in the room no it's conceived exactly like you would imagine three guys who work on a line in the detroit auto assembly factory would do it at a in a low-level union office mm-hmm. so they decide to go through with it and they're casing the joint sitting outside in Kodo's car talking about who works there, what time the police go by, all of this, trying to figure out when and how we're going to do this. Because first, Zeke has gone over there to complain directly to Eddie Johnson again about this locker issue. Mm. And Eddie Johnson fakes a phone call as if he's going to get it all taken care of. But in that moment, Zeke naturally has an opportunity to actually observe what's going on in the office and how just shoddy it is and the security guards picking his nose and nobody's paying any attention to anything the safe's wide open so it is a cracker box if you ever saw one and again the scene where they're sitting outside just underlines the whole thing that i was just saying about how these are not good guys because we've seen them go from this party where they were committing adultery and breaking the law any number of ways to now discussing the woman that is going into the building and they're arguing over whether she's attractive or not. And there's clearly no respect for this person as a human being. This is just another object to them, the way they are talking about her. And yet another instance of, uh, there's not much here to like about these guys in this case. They are very real. I'm sure these are conversations that take place all the time. But this is not an honorable thing. This is not an honor among thieves sort of situation. Definitely not. It's not as though even if Harvey Keitel is doing it in part for his daughter, nobody's got this, you know, sick kid that needs a kidney. Anyway, movies, they're stories. They're not contests. Yeah. <laughs> right. So. <laughs> but still, I do find likable things in all of these. Maybe it's because of just the personal charisma mm-hmm. of the Actors well, themselves, which I believe because I'm a huge Yafet Koto me fan. Me too, and you know how much I love Richard Pryor. You're he, the world's biggest Richard Pryor yeah. fan. And Kaitel is no slouch either. No, no. So, uh, yeah, I, if you look at our collection, I'm sure you will. there are probably, I don't know, 50 or 60 films with those guys in it sitting in this room with us right now. And Yafet Koto actually has occupied corners of my mind from time to time. No pun intended from the... Uh, Oh, no, wait, I got that wrong, actually, because he was in the Thomas Crown Affair. But that was, I think, one mills of the mine. Anyway, whatever. I really like Yafet Koto, always have. And there's, I think, an an innate huge amount of intelligence in him that that exudes from him, even though he has made these kind of lousy choices. Yeah, I I think that's the thing. He looks like the cleverest guy around. Mm, That's the thing that sets him apart. He's actually the opposite of the FBI agent in that he is the one that actually knows every angle, but it doesn't show on his face. He's got where the wherewithal to keep that close enough to the vest that it still ultimately doesn't save his life in this case. No, which is more of a degree of circumstance even than there was never much of a plan to begin with. So when the plan breaks down, it's interesting that you say that about plan and breaking down and everything, because there's, a certain very specific Calvinist take on this. Paul Schrader was raised in a strict Calvinist household as a kid. He didn't get to see a movie until he was 17, until he left the home and went to school. And 
there's always this undercurrent in the films that he writes and more specifically the ones he directs that everyone is moving inexorably towards this doom. It, it feels like that. It feels like it feels like at no moment was there a way for them to come up with a better plan mm-hmm. or for the plan to somehow just through sheer luck mm-hmm. or someone else's failing somehow be better than it was. That's it doesn't feel like that's ever going to no. happen. There's that point in Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead where he says at some point we could have just said no. That point does not exist. Yes. This machine has been in motion since the very first tumble. And there's no stopping this. There's no fork in that road, it seems like. And I think that is very definitely because of Schrader's Calvinist leanings. It's interesting when you read his early film criticism that he wrote as a student and how everything is about religion and transcendence. It's all filtered through that upbringing. The exact opposite of the way guys like, say, Spielberg or Scorsese, their whole adolescence was about movies. His was about religion and family structure, and it really shows up a lot. They've hatched this plan, such as it is, and they've divided up specific jobs between the the three of them in order to get ready for it. So they've assembled watches that they can Synchronize. synchronize, even though the watches don't work, and they've gotten their Halloween masks, which turn out to be the comedic element of the heist and they're ready to do the crime and so they break into the union office discover that the safe is actually open the vault is actually open they get in there's nothing in there of any value and then they discover another safe within the safe a much smaller one that they can't get open right that second right so that goes with them and they are able to break into it at home to discover six hundred dollars there's no mother load. There's no big score. 600 bucks is what they walk away with. So where is all of this money that all of these union workers have been paying their dues to? Where, where is it all? It turns out a lot of it is represented in a ledger that they find. They don't find money to alleviate their problems. What they find is this material with which they can now blackmail the union, they think, because of all of these improper, illegal loans that are happening, presumably with members' money. The union's lending to politicians, to mafia, to other unions. Who knows? These large amounts of money at very, very high interest rates. And so here's where the split begins to happen between the three of them. They each have a very different idea None of it very well thought out as to what should happen with this book. And in the meantime, the union reps go on camera, go on the news, report it to the police that between 10000 15000 huge amounts of money. Finally were, up to 20000 Up to $20,000 was taken from the union office. We know this was a big lie. So they're covering themselves. They're going to be able to collect insurance money. Mm-hmm. And it's just going to keep going on and on. And they've said... Because the security guards saw them, it was two black men and one white man that robbed this. So they've been seen to some degree. The pressure is also doubly on because our leads told the gangster that helped them get this all set up. Obviously, there was only $600 in there. The union goes to the public and says, no, it was $10,000. So all of a sudden, they're on the hook for a percentage of $10,000. And 
the people that are fronting the money for their deal are not going to believe that there was only 600 bucks in this thing. And once again, this whole cycle continuing of the union pitting the worker against the public. Because who is the public supposed to believe? Or the other, their fellow workers, they don't have any way of, of knowing that there was no money there. So they think, oh, I, these guys have stolen from me. Yeah, this is... Uh, this whole they against they. This idea, the crux of the second half of the film, this notion of stealing from ourselves, who they are striking back against... It's, again, such a muddled and contradictory and confusing thing. Short-term thinking that's going nowhere. Not fully understanding the ramifications of their actions. Like you said, they're not master criminals. This is not a well-thought-out enterprise. This is a short-term solution to a lifetime problem. Because what could they have been thinking that suddenly he's going to pay off his $2,600 tax bill... And no one's going to question it? No, because I don't imagine they would have been any smarter in the disposition of the money that they were in going about doing their breaking and entering. And they realize quickly that they are well known to everybody else as being close friends. They Mm. spend time together as a threesome or as families. And so they know, well, we've got to actually split up because now the cops are looking for two black men and one white man, which stands out. And the list of suspects is not long. Interesting that you mention how it stands out because Schrader tells a story about whenever he went to pitch Blue Collar over and over again when explaining to the suits that this story is about two black guys, one white guy, invariably, every time, the response was, don't you mean two white guys and one black guy? Because we can't sell this thing if the racial mix is predominantly black. So it very definitely sticks out. It's It sticks out then, it sticks out now, probably, if you're trying to sell this as a feature film. That's not a comedy. Right. That's yeah. not a buddy picture. Yeah. and Or that, you know, the white guy's not the idiot, or the black guy's aren't the idiots, or whatever. That yeah, nobody's there's not some the buffoon st- stereotypical in this. buffoon in it. And what also stuck out to me was that they'd seem really genuinely upset that they're going to have to break up, mm-hmm. essentially, mm-hmm. To, to lay low and not let their friendship be its thing because they actually feel really tight to me. All of that feels quite earned. And I was surprised when you told me later, and I was reading more about it, how plagued the production was on that personal level oh, they with these three. were at each other's throats a lot. It was a difficult production, most of which I would chalk up to Richard Pryor's drug use. It's yeah, that it's it's terrible to say because he's a genius. Yeah, he was a genius, but he was also out of control. At least there was a stretch. Obviously, this is the home stretch of that. Yes, this uh, is right the bad bad. He had his accident in 1980, well, accident. He attempted to commit suicide basically in 1980. But yeah, this was when that machine was really going full blast and so during the course of this production he pulled a gun on Schrader told him he was not going to do anything beyond three takes punched Kaitel, hit Kodo with a chair did all sorts of things Jesus. one of the other actors sued him for a million dollars for for bodily harm incurred during the production of the movie and I, I didn't know that watching it so it actually felt quite real to me their genuine affection for each other or, or at least 
that they've been doing this for a lot of years, which is sometimes what this stuff comes down to. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily that we have some sort of deep spiritual connection to each other, but we're in the same boat. Mm -hmm. And I look at you day after day after day, and you're better than the guy above me. Right. Who's... Almost like we've gone to war together. Yeah. And I think also back to Yafet Koto and Harvey Keitel's training, they're trained actors. Mm -hmm. You know, method, actor studio taking that stuff very seriously. So I can imagine to a certain degree if Richard Pryor had come in and was not using these more professional methods, possibly that was an issue. I don't know. I'm, I, I'm guessing. It's really interesting the way it affects the movie. There's one scene in particular that Schrader talks about where it's a shot of Pryor and Keitel sitting at the table at the bar across from Kodo. And in most cases you would say the director did a lot of really interesting things here with long takes, not doing a lot of over the shoulder, not doing a lot of single shots. In this case, it's because he couldn't. Mm -hmm. In this case, it's because if we don't get this in one take, one master shot right here, this guy's going to leave and not come back today. And so these scenes went on a little bit longer than they might have had he been able to cut them. And there are certainly no flourishes. Oh, no. It's not as though the camera's whipping around and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. It's, this is the scene, we're moving on to the next one. Yeah, camera's very static in this, which I think serves it well because it gives them time to talk. It works out in the movie's favor because it gives them time to talk to each other. And they are great in this. They are great. But that scene that I was mentioning with Keitel and Pryor on one side of the table, what you mentioned about Keitel and Kodo's training came into play all the time. In this particular scene, with Harvey and his style, it took him eight or nine takes to get warmed up, to find where he wanted to be. I could see that, yeah. Whereas with Richard Pryor, you get diminishing returns after three takes because all of a sudden he's off book, he is improvising, and he starts to lose steam. And so they would shoot Harvey first, five or six takes reading off of someone else Harvey's ready, they bring Richard in, and you've got this sort of sweet spot where you've got to get this right now. Because if we don't get this in the next 30 minutes, then we might as well forget about him. And so the way that Paul Schrader had to manipulate and stagger their performances just based upon their style and what they were comfortable with and what they would actually tolerate in this case, it was a lot of work, and Schrader had a breakdown thought he might never make another movie again after this. This was the first that he directed. He'd written, you know, Rolling Thunder and Taxi Driver before this, Yakuza, but this was the first film that he was actually in charge of completely, creatively, wrote the thing, directed the thing, and he thought he would never do it again. So I think all of these pressures actually not just technically worked in the film's favor, but also in terms of performances, because I think when you see at least to me, knowing what I know ahead of time, you see these flashes when Koto is regarding Pryor in a, a particular scene here or there, and you see that he's there's a certain estrangement. You can see that he's keeping this distance. It may be because that's the character he's playing. It may be a little bit because he has to watch out because he doesn't know what's about to happen on the set. But I think that little bit of distance that it keeps between them makes it a lot easier to buy when they have their eventual schism. 
when the union starts to bring pressure and they start to come apart as a group, it makes it easier to buy. Because the police and the union figure it out almost immediately who who likely the three guys are and start working on them. I mean, this is all, this doesn't take a long period of time. This is a couple of days and this is already unraveled. In the span of just... Because there was nothing there, you know? There was nothing to unravel, really. But in the span of just a few days, you see all of the various tools that the union has at its disposal. Murder, in the case of Yafet Kodo's character. They co-opted Zeke. They completely bought him out. And then intimidation of Harvey Keitel's character, so much so that he runs into the arms of the FBI, which is the last thing in the world a guy like that wants to do. But probably, I think, maybe the easiest because of his color. Oh, definitely the easiest. And this also brings us back to this whole, what is the union doing for them? When they parade Keitel through the factory at the end, under the protection of the FBI, to clean out his locker, Ed Begley's character says something to the effect of, you know, he's going to sing his guts out. He's going to tell them everything that they want to know. What is this misguided loyalty? We've just seen for the last 30 minutes, the union will literally kill you if you do not behave yourself. So what is this misguided loyalty to the union? And he's wearing those dumb white loafers. Oh, Kaitel. You know, mm-hmm. that's that symbol of this trash that you're given. That's a symbol of what? Of money these shiny white loafers but yeah what what's he gonna sing about everybody knows everything and they're just getting screwed over themselves by themselves <clears throat> but i feel like we glossed over there for a second yafet koto Smokey, gets murdered mm-hmm. on the factory grounds in a terrifying horrible way mm-hmm. not in a very claustrophobic not off screen mm-hmm. in a terrifying real-time way mm-hmm. he is smothered suffocated by the machinery of the factory itself. And for me, it was unclear as to... It's not as though there's just one bad guy, you know, who's pulling all of these strings. And there's the the foreman who everybody hates, and he's the one who tells him, go down and do this. But he's not the one who's made the order. I don't even know if he knows what he said. He's just... You know, somebody says, go send him this way, and that's what he's going to do. And then there's some other kid who we don't know who parks the forklift in front of the door, preventing him from being able to get out. I don't think he was any sort of a, an implement of, the, a knowing implement uh, of this I think, plan. I think he was. I think it very much is an illustration of that whole insidious, I'm just doing my job. Could be. I think everybody... If they didn't explicitly know what their part was, that they implicitly knew what their part was. And even if they didn't know then, they knew afterwards, that's mm. for sure. And didn't say anything. You know, they're not oh, coming forward not. to do anything. No. What you saw was an industrial accident. And that's all. I'm going to step back for a second and talk about the scene that we opened the show with, which I think was the most pivotal thing. I think there's so much going on in that little short scene where and actually can i interrupt you Mm -hmm. that was the our new additions to the magic lantern players that was uh tom waits (laughs) and some lady with her adenoids they performed it beautifully they did at any rate jerry Keitel's character goes to see zeke 
Pryor's character in the wake of Jaffa Kodo's death to figure out what do we do now? This whole time, Zeke has been negotiating with the Union unbeknownst to the other two to get this shop steward job. And everything, every crucial point is in this scene. You see that there is no greater instinct than the survival instinct. You see this never-ending cycle of there never being enough and what it motivates people to do and the sacrifices they make, including their friends. And Zeke specifically says, I'm going to make some changes. I'm in there. I'm going to actually finally get some stuff done. Do you think he really believes that, or do you think this isn't just another justification, or both? No, I think it's just a justification. I think at this point he has to know that he is looking first and foremost to take care of his family and make sure, like he says in the scene, that no one is going to come to their house in the middle of the night and kill them. That his wife and children will survive. That he won't be up to his ass in debt. That he won't be back in the ghetto six months from now. All this list of things that he runs down. Specifically after they watched Good Times earlier, mm -hmm. which is what that is all about. He is taking care of his own and he suggests to Kaitel, you need to do the same thing. And there's room for you on board this gravy train. Let me get you this job. And I think it's fascinating that he, that he says, you know, you can go out for revenge. You can go out looking for murderers. I'm not going to do that. Mm -hmm. And if it were another movie, that might happen. Mm -hmm. But there is no way that that's going to take place in this world. No. There's, no, there's no revenge. There's no upside. For anybody, really, there's just get in this thing and have it be safe mm -hmm. for whatever period of time it's going to be mm -hmm. safe. They, again, that monolithic, they are counting on us being too busy trying to just eat and clothe ourselves to see the complete picture. And all of that is in this scene. And I love that, too, because, again, Jerry, Harvey Keitel's character, doesn't indulge in that hyper-masculinity again, even when he's saying, they came after my family, what am I supposed to do? It's still not, I'm beating my fist against this. It's He is so impotent at that level, and accepting of it, and scared, mm. and knows he's got no place to go, and doesn't put on any sort of a front if they can kill Smokey on the factory floor and get away with it scot-free, then what are you going to do? So Zeke takes this job. He sees these guys like Eddie Johnson. Like we mentioned, you know, that at one point they were the agitators. They were the firebrands. Johnson says he sees a lot of him in him at one point. Whether or not that's true, who can say? If he's just telling him what he wants to hear at some point. I wouldn't say these characters have gone soft, because Kaitel says, you know, you've got your soft job now. These characters obviously haven't gone soft if they are having people killed. They're still doing those hard things, but now they're doing it so that they maintain their position of comfort within the union structure. It has nothing to do with gaining anything for the workers, for the common man. Now it's all about staying king of the hill. And there are old men on the line mm -hmm. that we meet. And I don't think any of our three characters want to become any of those guys. No. And I mentioned that final confrontation again when Harvey Keitel, when Jerry comes in with those stupid white loafers. And Zeke's got his own stupid shirt on, stupid pants, 
in stark contrast to everything else that he's worn. And it's just this flashy thing that he's got on because he can now dress nicer than everybody because he's not going to be covered in filth like they Mm. are all day. And he's making twice or more of the money they are. Yeah, we arrive at this final confrontation where these two scenes we mentioned, the one scene on the porch where Zeke essentially confesses that I took this job, and now the scene with Keitel in the factory are the two scenes in particular where they address race specifically with each other. It happens with other characters throughout the film, but these two scenes in particular are the ones that they discuss it directly with each other. The first case being prior telling him, you're thinking white. I've got other things that I need to think about. There are other things that are going to happen to me if I do this that won't happen to you. And then now in the finale, no solidarity. That's all gone. It's all me against you. It's all complete separation of race, complete separation of class. It is that divide and conquer theory of monopoly capitalists at work on the floor of this factory in living human beings. To the point where they're slinging racial epithets at each other. It's completely devolved. And then eventually tools. It's primitive. They have have Mm -hmm. completely devolved into two primitive camps that guarantee that this thing will now perpetuate itself. There is no more solidarity. There is no union to be had. The only thing that bothered me in that scene was when they go into freeze mode with this and they replay Yafet Koto's sort of mini monologue about this is how they divide us. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, I didn't need Two that. Two on the nose. Yeah. I remember it. It mm-hmm. just, it just happened not that long ago. Two on the nose and a little too dumbed down. Well, they weren't the smartest guys. No, so. it's true. And it played out exactly like the ones above them knew it would, the way it's played out for centuries prior to that. For literal centuries, because I was, again, looking up into trade unionism and how long corruption has been a part of it, which is as long as they've been around. Someone's always going to figure out a tool to make money out of something that starts out as as the only way a worker has to actually not die on the job, which happens in this film, get a fair wage, which happens in this film, and be able to get access to employment. And it's terrible. It's a terrible thing. I'm very upset, and I've been very upset since we watched this. But you still feel like, ultimately, it was a worthwhile choice. Oh, definitely. Because you I'm hadn't upset seen about it. the themes. I'm upset about the reality of life. That's mm. what I'm upset about. Yeah, you hadn't seen it before. I so had not seen it. Your first impressions were? As I mentioned earlier, the three principles are fantastic in this. It lives and dies on them, and they're, they're wonderful. Couldn't be better. Richard Pryor. I don't even want to say Richard Pryor especially because it's not shocking to me that he's fantastic. Mm. It may be shocking to other people, but not to me. And he is exceptional in this. Well, good. I'm glad that you liked it and that it upset you. (laughs) Thank you. I think it it succeeded at its job. Now, why did you choose it? Have we essentially answered that question? We answered that because, one, my abiding affection for Richard Pryor. Two, I think more attention needs to be paid to that entire strata of films where there are not likable characters, that whole thing, that can just go away forever as far as I'm concerned. And then three, the story that they're telling. The things that they're saying, it's, I would say it's funny, but that's not exactly what I mean. It's 
a testament to how well it's made, I guess, that it's still as relevant today as it was in 1978. Only becomes more relevant, maybe, as the years go on. I think that if you use that as a hallmark of great and powerful art, I can't imagine a time that this is not going to be a relevant story. And what you see on the screen in blue collar is not going to be a direct reflection of someone's circumstance, a dire, dire circumstance. So I think it's really important that people see it and understand how long this has been and will continue to go on. I think it's a really important document for that reason. Those are why I chose it. Do you want to give us something more uplifting as a recommendation for further viewing? Hmm. No, I don't. <laughs> okay. Um, I was just going to say, and it has that great Coke sex party mm. scene, which is pretty great. My recommendation today is I am a fugitive from a chain gang mm. from 1932, directed by Mervyn Leroy and starring Paul Muni. And this film haunted me when I was a kid, when I saw it. I saw it, I was probably eight or nine years old. I was so deathly afraid that I was going to get pulled into a chain gang or someone I cared about. I'm not good at suspense. Mm. It's terrifying to me. All the way up through Back to the Future and wondering if they're going to get those cables connected. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of things haunted me when I was a kid, and this really upset me when I was little. So, highly recommended. I am a fugitive from a chain gang. And what's the connection? Oh, the co the connection is uh, corruption at high levels. Okay. And how one person can get trapped in the wheels of that. Gotcha. I'm Sorry, duh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to stick with the Rust Belt dream and the pressures brought to bear on the American family that cause you to disintegrate in your own heart and mind and go Mama's with... Family, season one? <laughs> no. I'm going to recommend Take Shelter from 2011. Oh, Fantastic film by Jeff Nichols starring Michael Shannon and Jessica Chastain. When I saw it, it was my favorite thing I saw that year. Michael Shannon is so good in it, and watching him come apart under the pressure of providing health care for his daughter and a home life that's kind of cracking up because he's not quite sure if these problems he's having are real or just in his own head. It's fantastic. It's not quite to do with the corruption and vice that takes place in the Union world, but it is very definitely that last gasp of the American dream living on the Rust Belt and not being able to make ends meet. His performance in it is spectacular, and there's a scene where he finally breaks down publicly that is one of my all-time, maybe top ten scenes ever. It's worth seeing just for that, but the whole movie is fantastic. Jeff Nichols is one of the greatest working American filmmakers today. Highly recommended. So as usual, two excellent recommendations. I am a fugitive from a chain gang and take shelter. And that brings us to the end of a lung-rattling episode <laughs> of the Magic Lantern. Gosh. If you'd like to contact us, you can send us an email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We have a Facebook group. If you'd like to join it, that would be great. We are on Twitter at lantern underscore cast. I'd like to take a second and say thanks to the people who gave us feedback or shared links from the last show. 
Grindhouse Dave and Jeff Duncanson, as always, Eric Reese, Aaron West and Mark Harney from Criterion Close-Up, Tim Lego, Leanne Kubich and Micah Matson all had nice things to say and or shared links to the show, and we definitely appreciate it. If you'd like to rate or review us on iTunes, you can go there and find us easily. Stitcher Radio as well. Our show is now available on Google Play Podcasts, so if you have an Android and are looking for a way to listen, you can check us out via that. Any subscriptions, reviews, or ratings that you guys take the time to leave, we appreciate every one of those. Thank you very much. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental show notes, at magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. 